When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of presidential campaign curiosities. I'm John Dickerson. Our Whistle Stop today is August 18th, 1976, and we're in Kansas City, Missouri at the 1976 Republican Convention. Incumbent President Gerald Ford is drawing on his pipe in his hotel room while he looks over a Xerox sheet in front of him. On it are the states. He's counting up to see if he's going to win the nomination against Gerald Ford. Also in front of him are three televisions. He's watching the reporting on the convention delegate voting. And then on the other side is an open briefcase. And on the other side of that is a miniature elephant made of banana leaves that conceals a microphone, picking up the president's words for a campaign film being shot by a cameraman who is capturing every moment. Finally, the vote tally is red, and he goes over the top. He has beaten Ronald Reagan in what has been a bloody and protracted fight. He stands up and shakes the hand of an aide, saying, I guess we don't have to change that speech. This is the story of the convention of 1976, the Republican convention. It's part two, you remember. Uh, We talked about last week Ronald Reagan's surprise comeback in the primaries, where he took on Gerald Ford, the incumbent sitting president. Ford was the great winner of this protracted battle. Uh, But while Ford won the night in Kansas City and Reagan was the loser, in fact, this was the convention that led to one of the great signature moments in Ronald Reagan's life and mythology that laid the groundwork for his two-term presidency and the birth of the modern conservative movement. Last week, we talked about Reagan flipping the Eisenhower script. Remember how Eisenhower used the primary process to build strength for the moderates in the Republican Party to defeat the conservatives who owned the party machinery. Reagan did the opposite. He used the primary process to defeat the establishment. What we'll learn at the convention is the sort of punctuating moment of defeat for Reagan that propelled him to become the conservative champion. Uh, And it is in the It's not just in the context of Reagan that this convention is so important, but that in the context of this back and forth that started with basically Eisenhower in the post-New Deal fight going on inside the Republican Party. And that's the fight between the moderate or establishment wing, which wants to take Democratic programs, essentially programs that were created by Democrats, and just improve them, make them more conservative. And then the Goldwater, Taft, Reagan side of the Republican Party that wants to totally rip apart those programs and redefine the relationship between people and a much smaller government. The thing about Ford was, in that long narrative of back and forth uh, between conservatives and moderates in the Republican Party, Ford was not the most moderate of Republicans at the time. There was Charles Percy uh, and Senator Mathias from Maryland who'd been who were much more uh, moderate. And so you can imagine a protracted fight between a conservative and those two. But Ford, nevertheless, um, even though he was considered a a, uh, a conservative by some, um, was being measured against 
Ronald Reagan. And it's we've seen this a lot. In, uh, so somebody who is considered a co- conservative in one context just isn't conservative enough when they're compared against others. So, for example, in 2008, Mitt Romney was considered the conservative in the race against John, when John McCain was in the mix. But then in 2012, Romney was considered not conservative enough. In the run-up to the convention, both Ford and Reagan were trying to do whatever they could to win the affections of the approximately 150 delegates who were uncommitted. There was about a month between the end of the primaries and the state conventions and the national convention in Kansas City. The best account of the Ford operation and what it did to woo these delegates comes from James Baker, the fellow who would go on to be Secretary of State, Secretary of Treasury, uh, work in the Reagan uh, administration, work with the Bush family. He was also part of the recount in Florida after the 2000 uh, election. In his autobiography, Baker describes the care and feeding of the delegates, which represents some of the great lessons about politics. So it's not just about what needed to be done to win over these delegates up for grabs in 1976, but about how you get people to move your way, whether it's in politics or around the world. But Baker comes in to be the delegate wrangler, and he writes a memo called Proposed Delegate Management Operation, which set out basically a constant regimen of attention. Baker wrote, the worst thing that can happen to a politician is not to have someone to talk to. The next worst thing is to not know what is going on. So he commissioned basically a bath of communication that would go on to keep these delegates constantly marinating in attention from the from the Ford camp. Each of these delegates that was up for grabs had a biographical questionnaire that the campaign filled out, uh, learning every piece of information about the delegate, what their interests were, what their hobbies were, what their professional goals were, what their interest in the party was, and their political history inside the Republican Party. The campaign then went about contacting all these people, using this information to woo them, and they kept a log of contacts. And and here's one of the logs of a contact. This is uh, for uh, the entry from the 18th of June, 1976. President sent him a thank you note in response to letter of recommendation on behalf of a candidate for appointment to a vacancy on the U.S. District Court. 622. Per Jim Plummer, we'll go for Ford on three conditions. This is the, these are the conditions of the sought-after delegate. If Ford does not veto the offshore oil revenue-sharing bill, the vice presidential candidate is not unacceptable, and then in parentheses it has Percy, one of the more moderates in the party, and will not go for Ford if Ford challenges Louisiana and Mississippi delegations for not having enough blacks, females, and young. Then two days later on the 24th of June, it reads, Baker, colon, he needs lots of attention. So that delegate obviously was uh, needed more love. Rick Perlstein writes in The Invisible Bridge about the rise of Reagan and, and this period in 1976 about a delegate from Oakville, Missouri named Marlene Zinzel. She told the press that what it had been like to have the phone ring at the beauty parlor while she was having her hair set. And who was on the other line of the phone? The president of the United States said... Miss Zinzel, I could not believe it. I can hardly remember it. He told me he could win over Carter. He asked me if I would consider him, and I said that I would. 
Once the delegates knew that the bar was open, they were asking for free drinks. Baker said he wrote a memo to his file outlining the 17 different instances in which delegates made improper suggestions. There was one from the Virgin Islands who wanted a federal building named after him in order in return for voting for Ford. A delegate from Missouri offered to deliver uncommitted delegates if they were allowed to have a final say on patronage in the state. And a Brooklyn delegate said basically he would go to whoever was the highest bidder. On the 26th of July, Reagan and his strategists made a gamble. Reagan was the conservative. Ford's constant argument was he couldn't get elected in the general because he only had fans in the conservative wing of the party. So in order to balance that out, John Sears, who was running the Reagan campaign, suggested that Reagan name Pennsylvania Senator Richard Schweiker as the vice presidential pick. He was a moderate. The idea was that by picking a moderate, this would balance out and unite the party. But the problem was twofold. One, Drew Lewis, who ended up actually working for Reagan when Reagan was president, but at the moment was the Pennsylvania Republican chair, didn't move. He didn't abandon Ford. None of the delegates went over. But there was a second bigger problem, which is that in naming the moderate Schweiker, Reagan totally irritated all of his conservative supporters. Howard Phillips of the conservative caucus said Reagan had just betrayed the trust of those who looked to him for leadership. Congressman John Ashbrook of Ohio uh, said that this was the dumbest thing I have ever heard from. Um, And on and on, conservatives said this was a total abandonment of Reagan's principles. Schweiger tried as best he could to uh, say that he basically had a conversion and that he was now uh, trending in his philosophical outlook towards the Reagan view. This convinced exactly no one. Once they got to the convention, there were a series of rule fights. Now, you'll remember from the 1952 discussion we had that these rule fights are obscure, complicated, and they feel like the kind of thing that you can pretty much ignore. But here's the thing about rules committee fights, which I only really figured out once I started spending a lot of time thinking about um, convention fights. I'd always thought of them as something that was sort of besides the point. Yes, they were important, but it was only the stuff political junkies cared about. And it was a kind of wake me when it's over moment. But that was a mistake because what I now know about uh, rules fights is that They're important because they are essentially proxy fights for the actual final vote on who the nominee is going to be. They're tests of strength and prestige, which one side or the other stages in order to show the other delegates that their man is going to win the day. So at the 76 convention, the rules fights were important because by some state law, delegates had to vote for the candidate who'd won the primary on the first ballot of the voting about the actual candidate. So they were bound, but they could go their own way on procedural votes. So if you had a rule fight and the delegates had to vote on the rule, you could have a situation where you showed, and these were sometimes called Trojan horse horse delegates, you could show strength for Reagan and signal to everybody that Reagan had this underlying strength, but that a lot of those delegates, when it came to the voting of the act for the actual candidates, would have to support Ford on the first ballot. There were several rules fights, which we won't go into, uh, but the biggest one was um, over Rule 16C. 
And now Rule 16C required that all presidential candidates had to name their vice presidential candidate in advance. Well, why was this useful? Because the Reagan folks wanted to force Ford to make the mistake that they had made. So Reagan, by picking and announcing his vice presidential candidate ahead of time, had screwed up his relationship with conservatives. He hadn't lost them, but he'd made them suspicious. And he hadn't won over a lot of moderates. So they wanted basically Ford to name his vice presidential pick in order to disappoint some of his possible supporters, or at least freak out some of the uncommitted delegates. Uh, So it was uh, argued that this was a crucial matter of national security, not just some ploy by the the Reagan folks to get Ford to make an announcement that would somehow lose him delegates. But the Ford people fought this like mad because um, they couldn't just dismiss it, even though they had some strength in the rules committee. While 16C is being debated, uh, the the tension on the floor in the convention was out of control. People were arguing out the Ford versus Reagan fight in real time on the floor, uh, hoping that by winning each of these arguments, they could they could put their man over the top. The governor of Illinois charged that Reagan supporters had literally tried to purchase the votes of two Illinois Ford delegates. Marriott Goodlow said she had been offered $2,500 to pay for her travel expenses if she would vote for 16C. So in other words, vote to force Ford to name his vice presidential candidate. She said, I couldn't make no deal like that for the simple reason that I believe in God. And President Ford has been picked by his party. Of course, the Reagan side said, no, it was the Ford campaign that had offered cash to um, to one of the delegates to help with a congressional campaign that he was managing. It became such an issue that the FBI opened an investigation. There was also a scene in the New York delegation where tempers ran very hot. A, uh, a man from Utah supporting Reagan uh, charged that a, someone from the New York delegation had taken a sign supporting Reagan and done something with it. And so he ran over to the New York delegation and ripped the phone out. Here is the news report of that uh, as it was happening in real time from CBS News's Walter Cronkite. You know, some guy can charge it over and tore out my phone. Why? Yeah, he tore out the Ford phone, and he, and he also damaged my other phone. And, and what, what did he say? He was from Regan. He was a Regan man. From where? You saw a Regan buttonhead. And what did he say to you? Well, no, I think he's a vice chairman of one of those delegations. And then what happened? Well, then I when he, he ran out the back there, and I went back and asked him to have what, him. What reason did he give? I don't know. Something to do with a sign. I don't know. What's something to do with me? I think they got him, yeah. Did you get your phone back in? No, the phone's torn out. Look at it. Now, which phone is that? Which phone is that? So while the madness is going on over the phone that's been pulled out in the New York delegation, the Mississippi delegation was having its own collapse. So here's what's going on with them. In Mississippi, they operated under the unit rule, which was basically a winner-take-all. That meant that all 30 delegates from Mississippi would be required to support either Ford or Reagan, whoever had at least whoever had a majority of the delegation. Now, there were 60 people in the delegation, but only 30, um, 30 actually delegate votes would go towards the electing of the president. But that means if somebody won, if Ford won 31 to 28, he would get all 30 of the delegates. Clark Reed, who was the, who was, uh, the head of the Mississippi delegation, you may remember, he's the one who got invited to the White House. He was famous for wearing a garish black watch plaid jacket. He was the head of the delegation, and he had been floored by Reagan's selection of the moderate Schweiker uh, from Pennsylvania and pledged basically that he would go for Ford. He said, this kind of vice president is too big a price to pay for the nomination. So 
Reid said that's the way he was leaning, and that was going to tip the majority, although it was still quite close, the majority of Mississippi for Ford and therefore give him all 30 of the delegates. They, in fact, voted that way. Uh, and they had voted to support Ford on this question of 16C. In other words, he didn't have to announce who his vice presidential candidate was going to be. But as if to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory, Reagan's campaign manager, Rogers Morton, and you remember, you may remember that Rogers Morton was the one that when Ford started losing the primary said that the campaign was essentially stuck rearranging deck chairs on the on the Titanic, which was, you know, not a great quote to be seen in the paper as Ford was trying to save his campaign. Well, Morton put his foot in his mouth again, saying that Ford would write off the quote unquote cotton South against Carter in the general election. Well, this infuriated Mississippi Republicans because uh, they wanted to, uh, you know, play a role in the general election. And so they were so ticked off, they wanted to reverse their vote on 16C. Now, most of the people who wanted to reverse the vote were the minority of the delegates who were supporting Reagan. But nevertheless, they were in a moment. They thought that uh, Morton's comment might be, uh, cause them or give them a chance to rally some of the other delegates and they'd re-vote on 16C and force Ford to announce his vice president. So we pick up the action with Mike Wallace of CBS, who's standing outside the CBS News trailer where a rump group of Mississippi delegation has, they've seized the office and are holding a meeting in the CBS trailer. And they've been in there for about 10 or 15 minutes. They are basically the Reagan people in the Mississippi delegation. What they want to do is Mud, Brother, Dean, and I, office inside there, and somebody offered them the facilities of the CBS trailer, and they've been in there for about 10 or 15 minutes. They are basically the Reagan people in the Mississippi delegation. What they want to do is break that unit rule. As you know, earlier today, they voted 31 to 28, 31 to 28, to go with President Ford and not with Ronald Reagan on 16C. And then they decided to go with a unit rule, which is 30 to nothing to go with Ford and not Reagan on 16C. And then that story about Rogers Morton saying that the president was not going to pay all of that attention to the Cotton South upset a good many people, the Reagan people, inside that Mississippi delegation, and Clark Reed, indeed. It turned out uh, that they decided they wanted a caucus. But the Ford people of the Mississippi delegation refused to leave the floor. They, they didn't want a caucus. So for the last 10 or 15 minutes, they've been in there talking. In the end, the Mississippi delegation went for Ford. The the um, attempt to revote didn't take place. And it turns out actually on 16C that Ford didn't need the 30 votes. He won it by a larger margin than 30. But at the time, the Mississippi uh, delegation, as you can tell from the Mike Wallace report, uh, was um, was where everybody's attention was focused. The final place where there was a fight that is interesting, not just in terms of the storyline of 1976, but also for the future of the Republican Party is over the, the abortion plank fight at the Republican convention. So on the one hand, the Reagan men are fighting 16C, trying to use that as a way to break some of those delegates from supporting Ford. There was then a fight within uh, the conservative movement. Some of conservatives, Jesse Helms, the North Carolina senator in particular, wanted their own gambit to force Ford to uh, make decisions take positions that would shake loose some of those delegates from supporting him. And and Helms and his cohorts called this strategy purposeful conflict on substantive issues. So the big fight on the platform committee was over a constitutional amendment banning abortion. Now, this was supposed to put 
Ford in a pinch. His wife was pro-choice and had made comments about how it was wonderful that abortion had been moved from the back alley to the doctor's office, which is something you can't imagine today to have a vocal Republican wife being pro-choice when her husband is pro-life. Now, Republicans saw this as an opportunity to grab votes from Carter, who had, because of his uh, evangelical upbringing, had an inroad to social conservative voters. But because he was not as conservative on abortion, Republicans thought they could win over those voters by taking a strong position on a constitutional amendment that would ban abortion. So Helms and the others decide to have this fight, hoping that Ford will take a position in opposition to the constitutional amendment, and they'd have a big a platform fight that would then shake loose some of those delegates. But then Ford, in what was a, a pretty swift move, and I'm not quite sure how he got away with it, uh, basically says, oh, that's fine. You can have a constitutional amendment banning abortion in the platform. Uh, but that's not my position. He was anti-abortion rights, but didn't want to go all the way to the constitutional amendment. And somehow... This was allowed, and this has constantly been allowed ever since, which is that the party nominee who represents the party nevertheless can claim distance uh, from the party platform. So Ford basically said, OK, that's fine. So he didn't have the big fight that Helms and the others were hoping for. Reagan, who was still trying to appeal to a larger group, didn't make a big issue of abortion, didn't force Ford to say that he agreed a thousand percent with it. Uh, and so he didn't really seize this moment to uh, have the fight that Helms and the others wanted him to have. The reason this is important is that though Reagan went on to lose and Ford created this distance between the platform and his own views, there were a series of platform positions that were written into the Republican platform. And once they are written in by one set of Republicans in 1976, they are the standard from which all future platforms are to be written. And so it's always harder to get something out than to put something in. And so the platform of the Republican Party becomes much more conservative and gets kind of locked into that. In the end, Ford survives the Rules Committee fights, uh, wins over enough of the uncommitted delegates, and he beats Reagan. And and though he was sitting there with his Xerox sheet looking uh, at the tally as it was coming over, by the time the actual voting had happened, because Ford had won on the vote for 16C, everybody expected him to win. After he had won, Ford had basically two chances to use the drama of the event to his advantage. Remember from our last episode, the Republican Party is bleeding. It is taking a huge pounding, not just from Nixon's resignation, but the losses in the 1974 off-year elections. Ford has pardoned Nixon and so uh, is not in good odor with the country. Um, and he's being made fun of on Saturday Night Live. So he has some rebuilding to do, not just within his party, but within the country. The country is all tuned to the television sets because this dramatic fight has been happening at the convention where delegates at times will commandeer the trailers of news organizations. Um, so everybody's watching. Ford has two chances to use the drama to his advantage. The first is in naming his vice president. So he hasn't named it before the vote, but now that he's won the vote, he consults with Reagan, the man he's just defeated, and picks Bob Dole, the Kansas senator, uh, which is a gesture of unity. It's kind of the reverse of what Reagan was trying to do. He's a more conservative fellow. Reagan, uh, Ford is trying to show that he is uniting the conservative and, and moderate wings of the party. Ford's next job, after picking Dole to 
kind of unify the party was to prepare a great, wonderful, amazing moment with his speech at the convention. Now, that would be uh, uh, useful because everybody was watching in this television moment. But the problem was that Ford was not a great campaigner or as Stu Spencer, his political advisor, who had once worked for Reagan, the great orator, uh, Spencer said to Ford, Mr. President, as a campaigner, you're no fucking good. <laughs> so that's about as blunt as it gets. Jim Baker it, it writes a little bit more um, uh, gently about Ford. And he said that the problem with Ford was the reason people thought he was such a bad campaigner is his speaking style. He paused for a few seconds before he spoke, which gave the impression that the words needed to participate in the world were nowhere to be found and that inside of uh, uh, or behind Ford's considerable forehead, he was running around trying to find anything to say that might meet the moment. So he seemed a little dim, but when it came time for him to speak, he did very well. By all accounts, this was the best that anyone had heard from him. It was a very rousing speech about how he was going to win in November. But then, once again, the Ford forces stole defeat from the jaws of victory. Ford, after his triumphant speech, waved to Reagan, who was sitting up in a box uh, up in the auditorium, and motioned him to come down. Reagan had said he didn't want to. He told Tom Brokaw when Reagan had asked him if he wanted, he said, I have no desire to go down there. But the crowd started cheering. Reagan stood up and he put his fingers to his lips and and tried to kind of shush them. He, um, you know, used hand motions. He smiled. He was hoping it would all die down. It only got worse. People were yelling, speech, speech. So things go on a bit here. And so Ford has to like, up the ante. So he yells over the crowd, Ron, won't you come down and bring Nancy? Okay, so the crowd is still yelling. Reagan, Ford is standing there on the, on the um, platform with Dole and his old vice president Rockefeller. Mrs. Dole is there. Miss, uh, Mrs. Ford is there. The whole situation is there. And then Reagan disappears and no one knows what's going on. They assume that while these chants of we want Ron are going on, that he's coming down, but they don't quite know. And so Ford has to hold up uh, Bob Dole's hand and shake it in triumph, which would have been fine in the first minute after Ford had finished his speech, but it's now been a little while. And so each time he jiggles Dole's hand, it seems a little less powerful. And they're smiling and they're waving and it all, the whole thing starts to feel very, sm- uh, very forced and the smiles start to look like grimaces because they're wondering where, uh, where Ford is. So they're sitting there and smiling and grimacing and it looks like they're trying to pass something. Or as Edmund Morris, the Reagan biographer, wrote, the whole group stretched their rictus muscles until the stage, flashing with teeth, left to right, resembled a tetanus ward. Okay, finally, Reagan shows up on the stage and goes and and Ford introduces him and Reagan gives a speech without notes and there's much debate on whether he had memorized the speech. He was an actor after all uh, or whether uh, this was purely extemporaneous. But he talked about a letter he'd had to write to put into a time capsule. It was a speech from 30,000 feet about the stakes for the convention and the country. And Lou Cannon, who is the, the chronicler of the Reagan story, said it was a speech formed around Reagan's very deep convictions. It gave a glimpse of what a visionary Reagan was. It was Reagan's heart that set him apart. So by the time Reagan had come to the end, he had given a kind of speech about the soul of the Republican Party. And there were reports that people in the audience were weeping. In the video, in the newsreels of the the night, it sure looks like they are. If they're not weeping, they are on the verge of it. And here is how Reagan winds up his speech. Here in this hall tonight, 
better than we've ever done before. We've got to quit talking to each other and about each other and go out and communicate to the world that we may be fewer in numbers than we've ever been, but we carry the message they're waiting for. We must go forth from here united, determined, that what a great general said a few years ago is true. There is no substitute for victory. Mr. President. Sam Donaldson, who's reporting for ABC, said this was the first real emotion of the night, and it wasn't for the ticket, but for the man who wasn't on it. Kenny Klingel, who is a grassroots organizer for Reagan, this is from Craig Shirley's book about this convention. Uh, Kenny Klingel was standing in the aisle and said he was standing next to a big-time Ford supporter from Florida who heard Reagan speak and then exclaimed, oh my God, we've nominated the wrong man. This was one of the last times a nomination was really up for grabs. They've now been locked down so much. Uh, And this wasn't just a moment of high drama. This was uh, a moment where Ronald Reagan basically grabbed the heart of the Republican Party. They may have had to still go through an election in 1976, but Republicans were from then on pining for Ronald Reagan. And you hear now on the campaign trail, continued pining for Ronald Reagan. But that's, of course, people always pine for the better days in the past. But there was a period where people were pining for Ronald Reagan as the deliverer of the future. Fred Barnes, the conservative writer, writes, In the time it took for Reagan to speak at the convention, the Republican Party escaped the clutches of its moderate establishment and fell into Reagan's lap. He lost the nomination but won the party and ultimately the presidency, the country, and the world. So you see the the weight they're putting on this. 1976 convention. The other legacy of this fight was that Reagan basically had sealed Ford's fate. Ford already had had to fight the fact that he'd been never that he'd never been actually elected to the presidency or the vice presidency. And so as a result, people didn't feel any loyalty to their previous vote that they would have given him, as they often do with incumbents. So now they had to watch Ford be bloodied in his own party. And the Ford managers had this unmistakable feeling that what the that the country felt that the whole spectacle uh, of watching Reagan beat Ford almost beat him for the first time since Chester Arthur in 1884 to deny the nomination to an incumbent meant that basically Ford could never recover from that and in, in public opinion in his fight against Jimmy Carter. The convention of 1976 was supposed to be the end of one career and the start of another. It was but just not in the order people had expected at the time. We'd love to hear what you think of Whistle Stop. Send us an email at podcasts at slate.com, or even better, leave us a review on the iTunes store. It helps us spread the word. Head over to itunes.com slash slate podcasts. Our producer is Alexis Diao. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. And our executive producer is Andy Bowers. Whistle Stop is part of the Panoply Network. Check out the entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Whistle Stop Cracker Jack researcher is Brian Rosenwald, who hid with the children of Roger Mudd and Bill Moyers in that CBS trailer while the Mississippi delegation met and wrote down exactly everything that happened in his own hand. I'm John Dickerson. I'll be back in two weeks with another edition of Whistle Stop.